This is the Good Fire Podcast. Stories of Indigenous fire stewardship, cultural and social empowerment, and environmental integrity. Hey folks, welcome back. Welcome back to Good Fire for another season, season two. It's been a lot longer of a period in between than we had originally expected. Uh, I think last time... Thanks, pandemic. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know if it's entirely the <laughs> pandemic's fault or just you and I's laziness, but <laughs> hey, we but also we... had children. Remember, in the meantime, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, you were pregnant at the end of the last one, and I had just had one. That's right. Things yeah. got a little bit screwed up, <laughs> but we're back for another round, and uh, it's been long awaited, long anticipated. I'm really excited to get back into this again. I know I said in the uh, kind of in the teaser episode there a few months ago that. I learned a whole bunch in between this time from re-listening to Good Fire and then coming back in and and kind of resetting my intentions on how to how to carry myself through these interviews and how to receive this information. And so it's been exciting, definitely learning time for me for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to do this again. This is going to be good. So here's the first episode. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, today I think we're talking to Biami Williamson, who's just, I mean amazing. I mean, the work that he's done. And I mean, yeah, just even, uh, I'm just so excited to talk to him about everything that's happening in Australia. He's really um, working a lot on um, Indigenous disaster risk reduction, uh, which is a super important topic that we haven't covered yet on the podcast. So I think this season, like, yeah, you listeners are going to hear us kind of go in a few different directions. But, you know, it's really a reminder that Indigenous fire stewardship isn't just about cultural burning. It's about a lot more. It's about Indigenous people involved in all aspects of fire management. And that includes firefighting, which we're going to talk about a bit, and uh, emergency management, which Biomi is going to really get into. So yeah, super excited um, for this episode. Yeah, it's a great episode. Like Biomi first in the season, I think is the right way to go about it. Um, he was ha- just happened to be the first person we recorded with, and he just did such a good job of bringing me back into this world with his mm-hmm. just, he's a wordsmith. Like really, he's a wordsmith. I like, know. Yeah. Gifted. Way, um, yeah. yeah, very. He just, the way he talks is so elegant and easy to understand. And he just, he summed everything up very, very well. And I just, I loved it. It was, it was really awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Let's get into it. Actually, you know what, Amy? I think uh, seeing as this is the first episode back of Good Fire, we should probably introduce ourselves once again. I just realized. Oh, yeah, good, good, good point. <laughs> you go Otherwise, first. We're gonna... Okay, I'll do, I'll do my best here. So uh, yeah, welcome everybody. My name is Matthew Kristoff. I am a forester out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And uh, I host another podcast called Your Forest, talking all about environmental management and different perspectives therein. And uh, Amy introduced me to to Indigenous Fire Stewardship and wanted to make Good Fire. And so that's how I got involved with this podcast, helping to produce it and co-host it. And I've just become, I think, a real student of of this kind of knowledge and wanting to to learn more about it and support it in whatever way I can. So that's what I'm doing here and I'm excited to to get started. So that's that's my my little backstory, my little bio. Amy, awesome. what's your deal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I don't know anymore. But anyways, <laughs> so I, I have two young kids. So I yeah, between the pandemic and children, it's been quite the few years. But yeah, so I'm Amy. I'm a Métis woman from Treaty 8 territory from the Cardinal and Labakan families, which are two pretty prominent Métis families in Canada. Um, my family's from Fort McMurray and um, Owl River. 
Uh, I grew up as well in Treaty 8 territory in a little town called White Court, and I live now in Treaty 6 um, in another small community called Rocky Mountain House. And yeah, I'm just uh, also, I guess I should say, a research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. So really excited to be here. Um, yeah, my job is pretty much just uh, focused on working with Indigenous people um, and, and, you know, supporting them and getting back in, in fire in Canada. And uh, because it's such a small community here, you know, I have a bunch of different international colleagues who are just doing amazing work. And that was where the idea for this kind of came about. Um, and it's just been great. Um, everybody that's listened in and that writes us emails and suggests guests. Um, yeah, it's kind of created a little bit of a community. So thanks to you all for that. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Well, I think that's, uh, I think we're good, Amy. I think we're ready to jump in this episode. What do you think? Anything else to add? No, I think Biomi can say things a million times better than me. So let's go to Biomi. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump into this conversation with Biomi. Here we go. So, uh, Biomi, what, if you don't mind, I'm going to start, um, cause we don't know each other. I want to know a little bit about why you're doing this work. How did you get into this and why is it clearly listening to the articles and the panels that you've been on? It's a passion of yours. So yeah. Why, why this work? Yeah. So I got into this work, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm just thinking of where, where's the right place to start. Um, <laughs> so I got into this, I've always had a love of his, uh, for country, right? Always as an Aboriginal person, as an Aboriginal kid growing up, um, in Australia, um, I was very lucky to grow up really close to my country, to culture, to family, you know, as kids we were always taken out onto our country, always sort of, you know, had access to the fishing and to, you know, to catching yabbies and like kind of little Australian native crayfish and um, uh, freshwater crayfish and, yeah, always swimming in the rivers and going out and learning country and the, you know, the stories and that kind of thing. So, and just being with people on on the land, you know, we, we always had that. Um, and so, I don't know, and obviously you don't think about it at the time, but when I reflect back, they were just, it was just such so many formative experiences and what it did was instilled a deep sense of um, love for the land and for culture um, and for being there with people, with family. And then I think what happened was later on in my studies at university, I was kind of wandering around the university, wandering around between degrees and didn't really know what I wanted to do and was kind of feeling a bit lost at university. But then I found a home in the School of Environment because of this, you know, like I, I come to learn of it as a discipline of like um, of physical geography, right, being out on the land itself and being out sort of like amongst the native wildlife and then looking at the different ecosystems and ecosystem services that, um, you know, that that are naturally and, and, and I guess, um, unnaturally uh, put into the landscape um, and that go into managing a landscape. And then that kind of came... So I was studying environmental studies and I was also studying political science and I kind of was caught in this space in between and um, and I really wanted to explore this in-between space. And and for me, that opportunity came when I started working with Aboriginal ranger groups. So you had the physical geography, you had the cultural kind of spiritual, um, uh, you know, backgrounds of people that you're working with and of myself and you got to engage myself in the in the context of the research and what I was doing. 
but whilst engaging with kind of larger political forces um, and social and economic forces outside of the context of communities. So, um, yeah, I just sort of started working with ranger groups and I ended up doing my honours thesis with three different Aboriginal ranger groups from North and South Australia. And um, a big part of their work was cultural burning um, across all three different groups. And, um, yeah, I, I just became – I just fell in love with it, really, because it's uh, – I realised very quickly that cultural burning um, was, su- was such a powerful tool for cultural transmission. It was such a powerful tool for managing the land. It was – and, and it's such a powerful tool to bringing non-Indigenous people into that conversation as well because fire is a shared resource and for non-Indigenous people, fire is something that they fear. And so all of a sudden, if you get into this context of – if you're bringing a context of like fire and how you can harness it, how you can use it, how you can make safe, volatile um, ecosystems, um, you know, and obviously responding and mitigating against the larger threats of climate change, it really – gets non-Indigenous people. And I knew that it got them as soon as I started to study it. And so I just kind of went, this is a place where you can, like, it, it fulfills so many of my passions. It really, it, like, I, I, I can see myself in the work and I can see it as a tool to bring non-Indigenous people into a very real conversation of supporting um, Aboriginal groups uh, and their land management aspirations in Australia. So I guess that's kind of why... Uh, like I guess the journey of how I came to it um and the I, I guess the other thing to say is I just love it because it's um it's not um it's it's kind of I think I think the thing that I love about it most is that yes it is cultural yes it is intellectual um yes it is political it is philosophical it draws in all of these things but they're like it, it's so tangible it is about people on the ground. It is about people and their feet and their physical presence being on and in the landscape and them doing things in the landscape and them talking and being who they are in the land. And I just love that it's like it's there's nothing, um, you know, that that it's it's completely practical. You can reach it. You can touch it. You can see it. You can taste it. You can be it. And I just That's love That's awesome. It. Yeah, That's really me, cool. you've written a bit about the idea of Indigenous healing. And I think it really relates to what you're talking about here with, you know, that connectedness to land and, you know, how country is more than just a landscape to Indigenous people. Like when, like we look at a landscape or our territory, it's about, you know, relations and family and, and more than just, you know, what other people might see there. So I'm just wondering, can you speak a bit more to that concept of Indigenous healing and how you see cultural fire being a part of it? Yeah, sure. So healing, obviously, as Indigenous peoples all over the world, we have our own traditions of healing. We have our own healing practices, you know, our own healing, um, you know, uh, tools, our own healing medicines and things. And, and fire is a really big part of our, of our healing practices, um, you know, whether you're smudging up in North America or you're smoking down here in Australia, fire is central in, in the healing of people and always has been. And I think that, um, yeah, I've always just kind of working this in this space. Like there's, as, as we all know, there's so much trauma in our communities. People have never had the opportunity, I feel, to kind of pick themselves up and dust themselves off from colonisation. People have never had the opportunity to look around and sort of ask, 
what the bloody hell happened to us? Um, <laughs> yeah. right? and, and, and I just feel like being out on the land and, and, and cultural burning provides that opportunity to be out on the land and to, and to do things. It's like it, everything about it is it's immersive and it's restorative. And, um, you know, when you're going out there with people and you're learning and you're being and you're doing, it's, it's just, um, it's a wholesome feeling that you don't get otherwise. And, uh, and those opportunities are so rare for our people. Mm-hmm. They are so, um, they're so precious. Um, and so, yes, we might be managing the land and using fire to managing the land, but what we're really doing is healing our spirits um, mm-hmm. and healing the spirit of the land. So um, I, I just think that the opportunity, land management more generally, but especially using fire, um, you know, it, it, it has what it does to our people is truly incredible. And, um, you know, and you don't, you know, you can take Aboriginal, you can take Indigenous people onto the land with you and sort of go through that with them, even if they might not be from there. They definitely feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you you just need to be an Indigenous person and have access to that kind of, you know, to, to know what's going on and to feel, you know, um, and to feel culture and to know what it looks like, what it feels like, um, to, to, yeah, to have access to that. So, yeah, I think that we... Um, need to continually find ways to promote healing. Um, and I think we just need to find healing in all of our daily practices. Um, and, 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 but healing won't just, from what we know about healing, it's like it, it you, you can't, like you, you need to want to heal, right? You need mm-hmm. to want to overcome the wounds of the past and to heal the wounds of the past. And that starts individually. Um, but it emanates and, and is facilitated collectively as well and the land is center in that process um and i what one of the things i've learned from the healing um space from the healing discipline uh, from the disciplines of like um you know therapeutic interventions and psychology i'm not a, i'm not a psychologist um but i have done um sort of like uh graduate degrees in um indigenous healing um mm-hmm. and sort of understanding that field and what, and what i know from that is that the general field of psychology um, uh, and, and, and things like mental health support, mental health practitioners, um, they uh, they don't give Indigenous peoples what we want. We don't have Indigenous theories of, of psychology. We don't have um, a well-developed Indigenous psychological kind of, um, you know, therapeutic kind of model. We don't have mm. that. Um, it hasn't been developed. That work is yet to be done. It's such a missing part. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't know what works. Um, <laughs> you know, we know That's that on the land works. And so let's support and create opportunities for what we know works. Um, yeah. And being on the land and using fire is, mm-hmm. is, um, yeah, like I said, it's a precious thing. Yeah, one of the things that's been really interesting to me, like we've gone through quite a fire season in Canada here in 2021. We usually have about 20 to 30 evacuations a year, but I think we're at 210 now by our count at the Canadian Forest Service. And lots of those are Indigenous communities. And one of my frustrations with watching it has just been thinking, you know, why is it taking settlers so long to figure this out? <laughs> like Most of the Indigenous people that are interviewed that are impacted by fire, they've said, you know, we need more burning on the landscape. We need to renew that relationship with our territory and heal. 
And it just seems like every time it kind of, you know, falls, you know, like it, it always when the event happens, it's at the front, but then as life goes on and things, um, yeah, it, it just seems to always fall to the side to me. And then, you know, we get into the next event, the next experience, and we're saying the same things again. Is, yeah. it, just, is it just a bureaucratic boundary you think you're hitting up against or what? What do you think it is, Amy? Yeah, colonization pretty Just much like- for, I don't know what Biami thinks, what your, his experience is. And maybe this is a good time too to just chat about the, you know, you guys just went through in 2020 quite a bushfire crisis yourself. And Biami, you wrote an incredible article with Vanessa and Jessica on, um, you know, perpetual grief after what Indigenous people are experiencing seeing happen to our landscapes and going through uh, you know, the bushfire events again in indigenous in Australia, I think it had a really big impact on your Aboriginal populations. And I know you've talked a lot about how, you know, they're um, your Aboriginal or how Aboriginal peoples in Australia are disproportionately impacted by fire events. Mm. So yeah, do you have any, I mean, I know you have a lot of experience in this <laughs> area, and a lot of things. So we'll just open the floor to you to chat. Yeah, so um. I think sort of before going into the, you know, those, that, that fire up, you know, um, a couple of years ago now in Australia, I do just want to acknowledge that, yeah, um, you know, the incredible, the truly incredible fire season that you've all endured, um, up in, up in the north. And, um, you know, just sort of sitting here watching it, it's just heartbreaking. It's just, there's no other way to describe it. Just thinking of, you know, of the people, who have been displaced, who watch their native, their their ancestral lands burn um, and burn not in a good way. It's just devastating um, and, yeah, just traumatising. So, And we know that when Indigenous people get evacuated, they are exposed to more trauma and grief because of their being forced into systems that <laughs> generally they don't have say over. Um, and, yeah, it's, so, so just acknowledging that and that, um, and that, you know, it was, it's just really, um, it was just heartbreaking to see. Uh, and so, yeah, like we've been thinking about you guys for, for quite some time now, because I know this season has really gone on for some time um, up yeah, there. Thanks, Miami. Yeah. It's like how I felt in 2020 watching you guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. just heartbreaking to see all of this going on. Yeah, it is. And, and, and I think, Amy, what it points to is that, like, even though we're divided by, you know, the, the biggest ocean on earth, like, we, like, we see each other. We know each other, you know, like, we're, we're, we are kind of kin in this, you know, increasingly small world. And, um, there's a way of life that we share and an ethic that we share, um, that, um, that, you know, we, we stand with each other and we are, you know, we're, Unlike the rhetoric of non-Indigenous people at the start of COVID, only for it to fall apart, we actually are in it together, you know. Um, we, um, yeah, so it's a, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a heavy burden to bear, but knowing that we bear it with other, with other Indigenous peoples all over the world really lightens the load. So, yeah, just sort of acknowledging that. Um, and, um, but yeah, it's, I, I think the, the fires that were, that gripped Australia that were just so, oh, I don't know, like nothing like we ever thought could happen before on a scale, in a ferocity and an intensity that was just um, relentless um, and overwhelming. Um, 
at the at the height of that, um, it's kind of like the whole cultural burning discourse in Australia was kind of scratching at the surface for a number of years before that event. It was kind of um, people were hearing about it, it was coming up a little bit in the media. Um, there was a, there, there was a really influential book that was published about it a few years before that. So 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 people were aware, and then the fires hit. And what it did, all of a sudden, just an explosion of interest in Aboriginal people's cultural burning. Now, with the background in cultural burning, we were asked to write an article about sort of connecting cultural burning to to the to the to the crisis. Um, but we felt that that was the wrong time to write it um, to focus on that because something else was unfolding that 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 no one was capturing, and as far as we know, hadn't been captured adequately or sufficiently in other bushfire crises before um, because even though we didn't have the like the the raw data in terms of you know census counts population statistics demography that kind of thing um, we knew intrinsically that the fires were hitting in areas that had really high populations of aboriginal people a lot of communities a lot of townships with really big aboriginal populations um, and we also knew, and you intrinsically know, that the way Indigenous peoples experience these kind of disasters is very different to non-Indigenous people. Um, you know, um, damage to the land, trauma to the land has, uh, you know, um, has a deeper kind of impact on Indigenous peoples. But even though we knew these things, no one was talking about it. It wasn't being captured. Um, and so that's why we wrote that article to draw attention to something that we knew, but that non-Indigenous people either did know and didn't have the language to 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 talk about, or didn't know at all. And so we wanted to draw attention to that. Um, and so that's why we wrote that article. And yeah, I can just sort of that that article seemed to have taken off like a wildfire of its own, and really hit a point. Um, that um, that really resonated with people and hit it at the right time as well, um, because since then there's been a real acknowledgement by governments, by um, by the academy, by NGOs that the way that they need to support Indigenous peoples through these kind of catastrophes is is different, and they need to target Aboriginal people. They need to involve Aboriginal people and employ Aboriginal people in their organisations. They need to have Aboriginal reference groups. They need to have targeted strategies. That, that, you know, that support communities in ways that they need support. Um, and that didn't happen before. So we're, we're, um, you know, it's kind of sad to think about it took right up until sort of 2020 that people started to acknowledge that openly. Um, but, but it has happened, thankfully, because in an era of climate change, you know, these catastrophes are just going to continue. They're going to, you know, heaven forbid, be made worse. Um, and we know that Indigenous peoples continue to live in areas that are more prone to catastrophic events and natural disasters. Um, but, you know, so, um, so this has got a, um, you know, this is a train on a very, very long track. So we, we've got a long way to go with this stuff. Um, yeah, not like I'm not sure if there's anything else, any other specific questions. Well, I, I wanted to, I wanted to get you to, maybe go into more detail about the the context of how you feel 
Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal people cope with, you know, very bad wildfire seasons versus non-Indigenous people, right? Because I think um, the there's a context there that non-indigenous people aren't really going to understand. So how, like how, what was your emotional state going into this um, in relation to your non-indigenous colleagues or friends? And then how do you think, how how can we explain the difference to someone that may not be able to experience that? Yeah. So um, it's easy to say, to generalize and sort of say, you know, trauma to the land. Um, And there is an element of that, but what we're really talking about are people who have connections to certain parts of the land. And so if you think about it, like the, the, the country here is full of like it's a, it's a living museum for our people, you know. We've got trees that have been marked and carved and altered. We've got stone arrangements. We've got petroglyphs. We've got, um, you know, like all, all of these kind of um, man-manipulated parts of the environment that are part of our memory, that are part of our cultural heritage. Like I said, it's our, our museum isn't in some fancy building in a capital city. It's outside. It's in the... It's in the bush. It's on the land. Um, and so, you know, like for people to think about, you know, what, how devastating it was for something like the um, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris that burned down, you know, like well, that happens through these wildfires to Indigenous peoples all the time. You know, that's what we see unfold, the depths of people's trauma and grief. That's that culture shock. That's what we experience. Um, and then you, you, you also engage with people's living culture. So, you know, like I spoke before about sort of healing traditions, like a lot of our medicines come from plants, comes from certain animals, comes from certain like uh, springs, um, natural kind of water springs. Um, these are all the things that are just devastated when, a, when an out-of-control intense fire rips through the landscape. And so it has a direct impact on how, on our access, on our ability to, to access and to and to practice cultural traditions like like gathering of medicines and utilization of medicines and other resources as well. So, like here in Australia, I know that um, people use kind of things like um, native sedge or reeds or sort of certain barks and whatnot to for things like weaving, for creating of mats and of baskets and that kind of thing. All of that stuff is just destroyed, you know, in wildfire. So people can't don't have the resources to to you know for their art um, and for and for you know just to just to make the things that that, that, they, that they traditionally make they that stuff will take generations to replenish and so you know you, you've got longer term consequences as well of one not being able to do it but two not being able to pass that on to your kids you know um, and there might be a 20 25 year gap between you being able to go out and do that again as you did before and that's on the proviso that there isn't another fire that comes through and destroys it. People are connected to plants um, and to animals. So like me, like I've got a, my family has a totem, um, an animal that we, a native Australian animal, so for us it's the bigibilla or the echidna that we are connected to um, and that and like we've got responsibilities to that animal um, and for Aboriginal groups right around the country, they continue to associate very closely with certain native animals or birds or, you know, aquatic species. These are all the things that are being also displaced, also devastated and, you know, destroyed with these catastrophic events. So 
if I'm someone from a certain part of the landscape who has an attachment to a, to a particular bird and my cultural existence is entwined with the existence of that bird in the landscape and that bird is destroyed in a huge wildfire event and displaced and does not come back, what does that mean for the way that I exist as an Indigenous person? These are very serious issues um, and they are highly consequential for Indigenous peoples to be able to live in the world as they know it and for them to be who they are. So, yes, the way that Indigenous peoples experience these events and the consequences of these events for Indigenous peoples are very different, they are deeper, they are long-lasting and... You know, unfortunately, in emergency management around the world, I'm yet to find an emergency management agency that when a wildfire hits goes to the Indigenous people and says, what are the important things for you for us to protect? They don't do that. It goes life, property, environment in that order, you know. But for Indigenous people's life, it's not just human life, it's all life. And sort of, so we, we, we are so isolated and marginalised in the structures of emergency management and that, you know, doesn't bode well for for, 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 for what our priorities are. Yeah, I was going to say, by me, that's really interesting. It brought up to me a meeting that I had with an agency, and I won't say who here, but <laughs> because they were complaining at the agency because they had had a meeting with some Indigenous elders before about, you know, what should be protected during wildfire situations. And they and in the meeting I was at, they were complaining and saying, you know, they just want us to protect everything, you know, like, well, how are we going to protect? Like they say everything's alive and everything's connected, but how are we going to, you know, do this all? We're only, you know, we, we can't stop the fires. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a lazy response and it's <laughs> something that we just hear, hear, like hear all the time. You know, one, you should be protecting everything. First of all, that's your job. Um, <laughs> yeah. um yeah. and we know that the best form of protection is prevention and so you know like for people who are like oh you know, you know if you're fair income about protecting it um mm-hmm. you know you need to lobby you need to get into the faces and ears of politicians and senior bureaucrats and say we need like we need to take this seriously we need now is the time to make safe our environment not when the fire hits um you know, that prevention work is so incredibly important and also, you know, and, th- and that's when you can really engage in a conversation with Indigenous peoples about how, like how are we looking after the land? You know, you need to be forming those relationships ahead of time. Um, but in terms of, um, <clears throat> in terms of protection in an emergency event, in Australia, through that really bad summer, a couple of summers ago, what we have, what what emerged from that that didn't exist before is that in from where I know there were two places in Australia, uh, one in Queensland, one in Victoria, where in the emergency management, like um, the IMT, the the incident management team, the room in a disaster event, um, the room that makes decisions, that formulates strategies, that directs where the tankers go, where the people go, where the water bombers go. In two places, Aboriginal people, not 
an Aboriginal person, a representative of that traditional group, was and, and who had a lot of experience in sort of parks, services and firefighting, so people with the relevant experience, were brought into the room. And now when they were brought into the room, they weren't just brought into the room to sort of, you know, roll out a map and sort of say, where are your heritage values and we'll kind of protect that. Um, no, it was like they brought them into the room and they said, exactly what you said, Amy, we know all the land is sacred. We know you want to protect everything. Let's have a conversation with this disaster that's unfolding, the fire front that's here, the wind that's going to blow in this direction, a forecast of this hot, you know, of a day of this degrees, all of these conditions, let's have a conversation now around how we can manage this to the best possible effect. And what happened was that in both instances, the approach of the emergency management agencies fundamentally changed because of what the Indigenous person told them. And it wasn't just about cultural heritage values um, and protecting sacred sites and that kind of thing. It was actually about knowledge of the land. It was actually about the person in the room saying, okay, when the wind blows from here, there's this formation in the land, and I know it's hard to see on this map, but it'll make the wind do this, and that these are the areas of concern. Um, for in one of the areas, um, you know, the, the, the soil on the, um, you know, obviously underneath the grass, but the, the, the soil or, or the, 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 ge- the geographic uniqueness and the physical features of that place meant that they couldn't or shouldn't put in mineral earth lines. So for people who don't know, like mineral earth is where you get a, like a dozer in or whatever and you just, you just grate the hell out of the, the land and you, you, you rake it all, you, you remove all the things so you kind of get a hard earth line where fire can't, you know, shouldn't be able to spread across. Mm-hmm. And so they said, you know, in one instance, they said, these are the areas of concern. In another instance, they said, you can't put mineral earth lines in here because of the geography of the area. Um, and all of these things, like in a, in, in a high-pressure environment when decisions need to be made quickly um, and you've got limited resources and limited time, um, this is really important information and it enhances the ability of emergency management agencies to effectively deal with the disaster. Um, and in both instances, what happened was an incredible outcome. What they had was um, the effective management of an extreme wildfire event, right? You had um, the, the, the significant reduction of the fire spread in an area, like significantly reduced from what they expected to, to do from even the day before. Um, you had Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples working together on the ground, you had obviously the empowerment of Indigenous peoples in those spaces. You had what, what it turned out to be was the, the, just the incredible protection of cultural and heritage values. You had the preservation of certain pockets of wildlife that acted as refuges for, for, for wildlife to escape and for birds and animals to escape to. Um, and like you had the, you had the protection of, uh, water, um, water catchment areas as well. And a lot of it, like all around, just like bang, 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 bang. You had all these amazing outcomes. And it all stemmed from bringing an Indigenous person who knew what, you know, who knew about fire, who knew about land management, who knew, who had a long history in, who, who had histories in, in these kind of agencies, um, bringing them into the room and asking them not where are your heritage values, but Let's have a conversation around this fire threat, right? Mm-hmm. What should we be doing? Um, and 
I think that that's the blueprint moving forward. That's what needs to happen. We need to have Indigenous peoples in every region, in every bioregion around the world, um, <laughs> sufficiently qualified um, to sit in those rooms, to enter those rooms and to participate and to mm-hmm. actually be in the conversation around how do we deal with this unfolding disaster. Their knowledge mm-hmm. is a strategic asset and, yes, they contribute um, not in a way that's like detrimental to the emergency management efforts, but it actually significantly enhance it. The evidence is in, we make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And we need to pay them too, I'll just add. <laughs> <laughs> Not volunteer work. <laughs> We're getting started. Right? I know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, let's bring you in and we'll learn from your knowledge. But yeah, <laughs> thanks. Bye. Thanks. Go away. Yeah. That's fascinating for, for me to hear that. Like, I find that just incredible because mm-hmm. I remember reading the, one of the articles that you wrote. There was a quote in there. You said, uh, agencies must be equipped with the basic knowledge of our people's different circumstances, which I think you just portrayed why that's important, right? Mm-hmm. Like why that is needed and, and, and how that ultimately is going to help everybody. And, and it's just, it's just needed. It's a must have. And when I, when I read it, um, I had the thought of one time I was at a conference and it was a, it was, I'm a forester by trade and it was a conference about indigenous consultation, which is a whole mess <laughs> as you probably know. <laughs> but uh, one of the speakers stood up and she said, is it reasonable to ask a forester to have all of this um, knowledge, right? And I, my thought was, it may not be reasonable as we don't have the background to know it, but it should be reasonable. It should be expected going forward, right? Like it is one of those things that should be involved. Like people that have already gone through school, yeah, maybe they they don't have those tools. They've never had that experience or that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But how do we how do we create the opportunity for agencies to? I don't even know if I'm asking the right question, but how do how, how do yeah. we make it so that that knowledge is something that is attainable for them or or the people, the right people are in place so that those Aboriginal folks can be at the table helping make decisions and, and providing that context? Yeah. Um, good question. And it comes up consistently here in Australia mm-hmm. as well. Um, on a personal level i just find it so fascinating that people can um consider themselves lead managers and not know who the native people are for those places um, absolutely yeah you know? i agree yeah um yeah to me that just represents such a deep deeply colonial process and deeply colonial way of thinking and being and that's what we really need to overturn and like in, non-indigenous peoples know this stuff as well Hey, but I'm a professional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Biomi and I have talked a lot about that whole thing of who's the expert, right? And lots of times Indigenous people aren't recognized because you might not have the degree or other things. But it, that's been one huge frustration this year. Um, and I've seen it in BC and articles about Manitoba, Ontario is, you know, as much as we loved our the Australian colleagues, you know, that flew in here um, that were exported to help there's a lot of Indigenous people who are very frustrated at why they're not getting the calls in to provide advice and expertise because they don't, you know, have those kind of colonial recognized certificates. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, <clears throat> you know, Indigenous peoples don't have those qualifications because we weren't allowed to. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, there you go, right? We, Another thing, yeah. Yeah, so we weren't allowed to participate. Like even in Australia, like the first Aboriginal graduate at a university wasn't until like, the, you know, the you know the 1970s because we weren't allowed to be there. And so when people say, oh, you know, you don't have the qualifications, it's like, well, maybe if you people didn't discriminate against us and let us, let us get it, um, we, you know, this would be a very different conversation. Um, but look, there, there are systems of oppression centuries of oppression um, that, that remain ongoing but that have meant that Indigenous peoples have not been able to participate equally in society. And that is something that we still suffer from and it should not be weaponised against Indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, the Going back to the, the original thing of, like, working with, with peoples, um, I, f- I find it just absolutely the idea that, it's a burden for non-Indigenous peoples to work effectively with Indigenous peoples. I find it just straight up offensive because as Indigenous peoples, that's what we're expected to do all the time, every single day of our lives, from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep. You know, for us to be in this world, we need to know how to work in a non-Indigenous system, how to work in a settler colonial system. We know, we need to know how to participate, how to communicate, um, and how to act respectfully um, and, you know, dance to the white man's drumbeat, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to know that. We're not given a pass in not knowing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not excusable for us to not know that. So why should it be any different for non-Indigenous peoples to know how to work with us, especially in something as pivotal, as important as land management and emergency management? You know, we it's really time to move on from that conversation and say, no, you know, there is a reasonable expectation that society has that land managers know how to work with Indigenous peoples. There is a reasonable expectation that emergency managers are do know how to consult effectively and respectfully with Indigenous peoples to make sure they are not isolated in an emergency response. Um, I think these are very reasonable expectations, and if it means that non-Indigenous peoples need to go back and retrain, go for it. You know, <laughs> I love it. That's that was that was such a powerful speech you just gave it um i could listen to buy me preach yeah. all the time well, well, just the, go the, get him by me <laughs> yeah like the, the, the words you use are so powerful and i don't think people mm-hmm. like myself or, or non-indigenous people that are in positions of power over over the land over the clone like you know what i mean in the colonial system mm-hmm. they don't get talked to like that right they don't they don't get put in the place of like hey here's the context that i have that you're missing and like you use the word you know weaponized and you use the word I'm forgetting now, but it was, it's so perfectly contextual, right? You're like, Hey, listen, I have to do all this stupid shit that you make me do because it's your, your culture. How come you can't like, why is it unreasonable for you to understand my culture? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating issue. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Right. And I've, I'm learning so much just from this last 40 minutes that we've been talking from just from listening to you, contextualize it in a way that i've never heard before you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that that concept of just hey we are forced to do what you want us to do how come 
what the hell? Like, what's what, what, yeah? The inequality yeah, and, is just crazy. And, and, we're, and we're not asking people to go back and radically change who they are, and radically. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, and this is the thing about privilege, right? When people are asked to 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 give a little, they feel like it's kind of they're being persecuted in it, and it's like it's got nothing yeah. to do with you personally. Um, you know, it's just kind of, and and if you feel personally attacked or per- personally uncomfortable, like you really need to sit with that and really think about that. You know, mm-hmm. and people who like to. In my experience, people who don't like to engage with their things, like they're really intellectually lazy. Um, they don't like <laughs> yeah. to think, right? It's like, dude, wake up, get your mind out of bed and go for a jog and, you know, clear your head and, like, think, be happy to think about it. Um, mm-hmm. Be happy to be unsettled. That's where growth happens. It's the ego, right? I find it's the ego that steps in the way and just doesn't allow you to be wrong as if there's something unacceptable about changing your mind and growing, right? Like I I already have it all figured out. You can't tell me anything. It's just, it's exhausting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the the thing about it is, is that, you know, certainly in my experience, when people open themselves in that way, when people are willing to let in things that they weren't before, when people want to grow and do better and be better, right, they feel better about it as well. Like, yeah. it's exciting. It's, you know, it's fascinating. Um, it's enriching and it's, you know, motivating. So, it's kind of like there are no losers when people mm-hmm. want to learn and want to grow and want to, you know, learn about themselves so that they can then engage more respectfully with other people. Um, yeah. So, and I think for what, what you get in practice, especially in things like land management or fire management, well, you get a people who are like a workforce and, and staff and crews who are just better at their job. So who doesn't want to be better at their job? Who doesn't want to be a better person, more contextualized, more better perspective, right? I love that concept of the, you know, that's the zero sum game, right? Like that's not, it's not the way it works. (laughs) Yeah. By me too. I just want to bring up, I was just so proud of you and my other Aboriginal colleagues around the time of the Royal Commission um, for the 2020 bushfire. For in um, Canada, we don't have things like that. So I was wondering if you could explain, you know, what a royal commission is and your submission um, to the royal commission on the 2020 bushfires. Um, I thought that it was, you know, really beautiful how you testified and then also in the piece that that you wrote there. Yeah, thanks, Amy. So the royal commission for us is like a really, I don't know, it's a really big national inquiry. So it's a, for us, a royal commission um, it's almost like an act of parliament that gets passed um, for a national inquiry to look at a certain event or process. Um, so previous royal commissions or recent royal commissions that we've had, we've had like a royal commission into um, banking and insurance in Australia. We've had a royal commission into the treatment of um, of of children and young people in in like and, and the abuse of children and young people in in religious kind of institutions. Um, we've had a royal commission into the treatment of people with a disability. So, like, really big kind of ideas, really big concepts and really big processes. Um, and, yeah, so after the 
the extraordinary event of the bushfires, we had a royal commission into those bushfires. Really, it was the, the full term was the royal commission into national natural disaster, um, like preparedness arrangements, or something like that. I don't know something. Really <laughs> Some long title. <laughs> and it's like you should have just call it bushfire commission, but that's what we called anyway. What we, um, and but even sort of like the work with the Royal Commission started before the Royal Commission was called because what we did was um, when the event was unfolding, we wrote a working paper and in that working paper, we looked at um, two previous really big, not national, but really big inquiries um, after that, that, that occurred after two really big fire events in Australia. So, we looked at the bushfire inquiry for the 2003 Canberra bushfires and also the Victorian Royal Commission um, that was called in 2009 after the Black Saturday bushfires. So two really catastrophic, you know, highly damaging bushfire events that happened. Um, we looked at those because we... We needed to analyse those to look at how and expose how Indigenous peoples had been made invisible in those inquiries previously. And what we found was that in those two previous inquiries, Aboriginal people, Indigenous peoples were just nowhere to be seen. You know, the the Canberra bushfires had one acknowledgement of Aboriginal peoples as possessing the land before colonisation, and that was it. The... 2009 Black Saturday Royal Commission um, uh, had spoke about Indigenous peoples only insofar as their cultural heritage values in the land. So their people and their presence as people was no not in there. Um, what we found was that there was more there were more references in that inquiry in that Royal Commission to Indigenous ecosystems than there were to Indigenous people. And so by kind of looking at those, we've got an evidentiary basis to then say these processes have, um, they are colonial processes and they have erased Indigenous peoples in the past. And we started to advocate openly that Indigenous peoples needed to be not just like in, but a central part in this new Royal Commission that we knew was going to be called. And we had... Yeah, so 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 even the fact that we were there, Amy, was not by accident. Like we had to fight to be there in the first place. Um and so <clears throat> what um oh, so so we weren't completely satisfied with it because the terms of the Royal Commission, like they the government sets the terms, which means that it is bound by what the government is and is not willing to receive, I guess. But we had a small opening because for the first time we did have in the Royal Commission terms to, to like inquire as to like, um, Aboriginal people's cultural burning experiences was the specific line item in the terms of reference. And so that just opened a door for us to get into the room. Um, and I think about it as like, we, um, I, I was one of the people, the expert witnesses that was called. Um, so yes, we made an inquiry. I mean, some colleagues of my, some colleagues, um, Dr. Jessica Weir and Francis Markham, who we wrote the paper with, um, made a submission, and then um, and then yeah, myself and a few other colleagues were called as expert witnesses. 
So what does that mean? Like you have to, like I was saying to Matt, I'm, I think they swore on a Bible, but I don't really know what, but it's, yeah, it's like a legal process, right? It is a very, very legal, very okay. bureaucratic process. So yeah, you have to, you, um, they reach out to you to kind of, you know, vet you, I guess, in the first mm-hmm. instance. And then they officially, they send you a letter of summons, which means that you're legally obliged to rock up and to talk wow. to it. Yeah. And so, um, um, yeah, and then we got sort of, so the summons and then, um, accompanying with the summons was like an official letter of invitation to come and to participate in it. Um, and then you get briefed on questions and responses and, you know, like what you're meant to do and how you're meant to behave. <laughs> um, and then you, um, yeah, you get called, the day comes and you go and then you can choose to swear on a Bible or choose to take an oath. And then I mm-hmm. just took an oath. Um, and basically it's like a law, it's like a courtroom then you can't sort of, um, you know, step outside of the, the very tight rules of, of, of the officialdom. Um, yeah. And you can't tell lies for fear of sort of, you know, being held in contempt and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, but we were called as expert witnesses. So we weren't kind of too worried because we were invited to talk and they wanted to listen. And so, like I said, a door kind of got open to us that wasn't there before but talking with the colleagues before it was very obvious that we seen this opportunity not as a nice kind of not like you know um a nice uh dare i say civilized way of just kind of coming in and seating and talking quietly and educating it's like no we wanted to like slam the door open and come charging in and sort of get our information just slam it down on the table and then just sort of you know put put things out there in a way that was just so irrefutable, that was clear, that was concise, and that was just the most powerful things that we could deliver at that time. And so that's what I guess we tried to do, and I think we achieved that in some respects anyway. Um, yeah, even though we were the, – the item in the terms of reference was only to do with cultural burning. Our interests were much wider than that and we made that known. Even though they couldn't report on it, it is on the record and that was really important for us. Things like the population of Aboriginal people that were affected, the number of Aboriginal children and young people and babies and infants that were affected by the fires, the fact that we know that children's development is – um like as a delayed consequence for the um, for children's development after these catastrophic events. So it doesn't happen in the one or two years after. It happens in the three to five years after that we start to see the impact of these events on children's development. So that was really important to get out there. Um, and also that, you know, we aren't satisfied with the, with the expertise in the um, emergency management sector and there's a lot of work that needs to be done there and that, you know, for us, one of the limiting factors is it, you know, yes, it is kind of money and access to programs and training and that kind of thing. Um, but some of the biggest things that affect our ability to manage the land is access to land. You know, we still mm-hmm. are dispossessed of a lot of our country um, and we can't manage it if we don't have access to it. Um, and just the racism within a lot of emergency management agencies across the country. Um, and so these are all things that we tried to get across in one way or another. Um, a lot of them got reported. Um, like the stuff around cultural burning definitely got picked up and I feel like the Royal Commission did a good job of simply clarifying and creating a national reference point for what is and is not cultural burning. For instance, mm-hmm. cultural burning isn't something that non-Indigenous land managers can do. 
marketplace. It's not something that you can go out with a with a local kind of native person and you know, they can sort of talk to you about cultural burning and what to do and what not to do. And then, you know, you get back in your trucks, they pat you on the back and say, off you go. You guys can cultural burn now. Like it doesn't work like that. Um, (laughs) You know, Or just come for the picture. That's the one I always love to get the picture. Yeah. Yeah. But like things like if you want to support cultural burning, it means supporting um, local Indigenous peoples. It it means supporting them on the ground. It means supporting them and engaging them to design their own programs, to deliver cultural burning in their own ways. The cultural burning is different across the country. Um, What works in one community isn't necessarily going to work in another community, which makes complete sense because the land is different, the environment is different, the geography, the climatology is all different, and so the fire regimes would be different. Um, So these are all things that we said that were really picked up, and so what we have now is a really strong reference point to – to fight against the co-optation of our knowledges with regards to cultural burning. So we've managed to, you know, stave off the dogs with that one and, um, and you know, we, we've managed to, to kind of keep cultural burning within our own arms, which was really important because, it, because in the early days um, after the Royal Commission anyway, mm-hmm. the, the discourse was very much around what non-Indigenous people can learn from Indigenous peoples um, it's like no, 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 no. Let's not. Let's yeah. not go there. No, we've had. I'm so scared of that. By oh. me, like here, it's just we've yeah. had so much press interest in cultural burning, and all all that I've heard is, oh, what can we learn from yeah. this? You know, and they wrap it right into prescribed burning. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah, it no, freaks no. me out. Yeah, no, it is. It is scary, and like you, it's yeah. not to say that fight's over. We still have to do it, but it we, we like in Australia. Through that process, we were we were provided a platform to, I guess, write our own terms for that, and we did, um, and that's very clear and on the record now. Um, and so that's something that we can continuously learn, uh, continuously rely on. Um, so the, there was that, and the, the other stuff that we spoke about, like the unique impacts on Indigenous peoples, the disproportionate impacts, the number of children that are affected, the racism in emergency management. Um, uh, agencies and services. Um, so that stuff wasn't, it couldn't, it wasn't reported on because it wasn't in their terms of reference to report on. Mm-hmm. But we made sure that we were provided the opportunity to say it on the record in those spaces anyway. Um, and the media definitely picked that up. So even though we couldn't, like we, we were, we were very hamstrung with what we could get into the final official report but we made sure we were creating opportunities to get other messages, really important messages out in other ways. So the media picked it all up and a lot of scholars use our testimony to to reference like things like the unique impacts and the disproportionate impacts on Indigenous peoples as well because it, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's another form of just, you know, getting it on the official record and we did that. So we used it strategically. Yeah, the Indigenous children thing is has not really gotten any attention. Like Dr. Briney Towers, you know, has done so much work on, you know, bushfire and children. But I know even she was saying that there's just has been a lack of research or even interest in impacts on Indigenous children. Mm. Yeah. So in Australia, and I know it's very much um, similar in Canada, um, you know, the population distribution of Indigenous versus non-Indigenous populations are very, very different. So, um, for, like, the, the like, on a, on a 
y-axis, it's like the population distribution for non-Indigenous people is kind of like a bell curve with it coming out sort of like the, the most people around kind of middle age and then it kind of tapers okay. off either direction. Mm. Mm. Um, whereas for Indigenous peoples, it's at the bottom. So we're population growing from the bottom up. And so it's kind of, yeah, like a not a perfect kind of um, diagonal line, um, but it is somewhat, does resemble that somewhat. So you've got the largest portion of Aboriginal people in children and young people with very little elders and kind of like the, the axis kind of goes, goes along that trend. Um, but what does that mean in terms of when these disasters hit? It means that the services that are provided to support communities in the medium and long term are very, very different. So you need to, you've got larger populations of Indigenous children and young people. So how are you supporting their education and development? Um, like I said, in not just the one or two years after, but the three, five, seven and years after to make sure that they can, that they are provided the same opportunities to achieve academically to make sure that you do have the family services uh, and support services to, to um, appropriate services to support families um, through and post those kind of events. When you're look at, looking at things like where there's been destruction of housing, how are you rebuilding houses that are supporting um, that, that know and are supporting family units in those areas? Um, so all of these questions are really, really important. And, you know, like what's more important than, than supporting kids to come out of, these kind of disasters and make sure that they've they're giving every, given every opportunity in life as well. So that's that remains something that we keep watching in those bushfire communities, and it's I think it was also a larger a larger lesson um, with COVID, right? Um, mm-hmm. And children and young people that are living through these extraordinary times. So um, now the world has fundamentally changed and how are we changing it as a society and as parents, um, you know, the, to, to support our kids and make sure that they're, they're not being left behind in all of this. It's, uh, it's a really, it's like, it's just one of the most important things that we could, we could think about. I wanted to ask a question again on the Royal Commission again. I just wanted to know how it felt to go in there, you know, like a cultural tsunami. Like, did it feel like you had the weight of like all the Aboriginal people in Australia on your shoulders and that you were finally able to speak your truth or how did, how did it feel to, to be in that position? Um, it's conflicted. Um, in one respect, it felt really, um, um, I guess, like really, like really powerful because you had a voice, and it's a, um, um, yeah, we had a um, powerful in that. Yes, we had a voice, and we had a had a captive audience that wanted to listen. Um, so I think that that's was genuinely, you know, um, what it feels like to have a voice. But I feel conflicted about that because that's how white people feel all the time. <laughs> you know, we, oh my god, isn't that true? We yeah. we got one day in this really big royal commission, really big process 
we had one day to make our voices heard. We had one hearing. Um, um, you know, the Royal Commission went for over a hundred days. You know, mm-hmm. and all, like in so many te- different testimony, so many different agencies and staff and and and, and survivors. You know, of, um, and people, and not to say that there weren't other Indigenous peoples who were, especially as kind of um survivors and people who were kind of directly impacted. Yes, there were there were people there. Um, but there is no doubt that whilst we had a very small opportunity to make our voices heard, it was still limited. It was still marginalised. It was still contained. Um, mm-hmm. And as I said, you know, like I, I, I know people, I, I work with people who testified to the Royal Commission like more than three times um, because they occupy a certain position in like emergency management um, and people who have testified to royal commissions in the past. So people who this was like another, another, another part of their job. Like there's one colleague I know that has testified to six different um, commissions or inquiries like those official processes over their career, six different times. And so whilst it felt really powerful and satisfying to step into those spaces and do it, under no illusion that um, the fact that it was unusual speaks volumes and the fact that we were only given a very small amount of time to talk about what a very complex, um, historical and very difficult topics um, also kind of, I don't know, I just, um, yeah, we've still got a long way to go. I feel you, but I mean, we have a similar process here that I was involved in where they were doing a, a basically a commission on emergency management. And so they invited myself um, to come talk about Indigenous um, emergency management and Indigenous communities. But nobody who was on the panel who was writing it up was Indigenous out of all of, you know, the 20 plus academics that they had. So it's very frustrating. And I mean, I called them out on it in my presentation and just said, you know, we shouldn't just be special guests at sessions. We should be on these panels and commissions yeah. that are looking into these things. Yeah, right. When when, when are we going to have an, an Indigenous person who's a Royal Commissioner? You know? Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. We They always like to kind of, it's like the whole thing about, you know, the side special panel at conferences and stuff. Yeah, right. Instead yeah. of having Indigenous people, you know, present throughout, just That's having it. a special session where they push us. Yeah, yeah. And like, what would it look like if we had an Indigenous commissioner? What would it look like if we had an Indigenous person who was like drafting mm-hmm. the letters patent, drafting the terms of reference for these inquiries? Like, how would it look? How would it feel that is different to how it looks and feels otherwise, you know? So yeah. it's, um, um, yeah. Yeah, the the last BC, um, we don't have royal commissions, but like the last BC fire review or something, Maureen Chapman was actually probably there. I think their first Indigenous woman who was involved as um, it was her and one other person that were the commissioners or the people in charge. And I thought because of that, it was um, a very different report. Yeah. But I also know that there was a lot of internal conflict, yeah. you know, between because you had these two totally different views present on, on how, 
you know, the report should be written, who should be interviewed, who should have a voice. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So it's, um, yeah. So there, there's a, these are sites where, you know, colonial conflict is still endemic. So we just need to keep advocating and keep, you know, banging at the door anyway. So, and it's just, it's just not good enough to ignore us anymore. So now we need to fight at a different, in a different field. And that is about how we actually get people involved in the decision-making about these processes. For sure. So, by I mean, just to wrap up here too, I wanted to bring it a bit to your PhD research. I know you're focusing now on, you know, Indigenous men and masculinity and these ideas. I just wanted to have a quick chat with you about your thoughts of uh, masculinity and, and fire management. Yeah. I know it's probably something you could talk about for hours, but I really see it interesting here, um, just especially in the last fire season, you know, having this kind of gung-ho masculine mm. fire culture, I think has been really interesting. And I don't think Indigenous people fit well into it. Um, yeah, not, go ahead. Yeah, no, not at all. So yeah. my, my, yes, my topic is on Indigenous men and masculinity. So the PhD is called Indigenizing Masculinity. So it's kind of, yeah, looking at sort of what, what does masculinity's discourse look like from an Indigenous perspective and how is it different to how non-Indigenous people talk about masculinities in the 21st century. So, um, <clears throat> and um, the, the PhD topic actually came out of my time working with ranger groups, working with fire management groups, because when we're out on the land working with people um, and researching with communities, what so I found something just really so interesting, and that is that... Um, in these land management groups, in these cultural land management groups, they're full of young guys, full of young Indigenous men. And you get out on the land and, 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 and you work with them and you sit with them and you talk, and you, and you talk with them. And, 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 and what you hear and what you see and what you feel are just these gentle souls, these really strong cultural beings, these young men that are just wanting to learn, that, that, that love being with one another, um, that, that are like just so strong in who they are. And then it just runs, those experiences just run so counter to how we think about Indigenous men um, or how Indigenous men are portrayed in dominant society. And, um, you know, or, or the portrayal of Indigenous men is often as, you know, the predator, as the abuser, as um, the alcoholic, as, yeah. as dangerous, as... Um, you know, as, as, like as a as a beast, really, um, and you go out with these other young guys, and it just you could not think of a more inappropriate ways to describe them. Um, they're just nothing like that. And so, I was really, really interested in like, what is it about this work that brings young Aboriginal men into it to 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 mentor them, to to learn them, to educate them, to um. Yeah, to keep them connected. What is it about the work that really draws them in? Um, and give and, and and what does it give them? And what and what 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 are they giving back? Um, and yeah, I, I just think that. Um, and and as I've kind of moved through my life and professional and educational journeys, I've also seen this come up in other areas. Like, I've got a background now in Indigenous governance as well, and in those governance and political and decision-making spaces, you see both the best and worst of, I think, um, men in particular. Um, you see some yet men that are really kind of, you know, um, want to stomp their, their their hand on the table and say, I am the boss or I am the chief or I am, you know, 
this is the men's way. Decision making is men's thing. And like, I just think that's such crap. Um, you know, and I've got like, well, we know where that kind of comes from, right? Mm, um, but yeah. conversely as well, you get some male leaders that are just, as I said, it's like kind of gentle and very strong people, but just kind of really gentle folk who are really strong and who just go about their way fundamentally differently. So, so like, I just kind of see that there's kind of, there's really interesting stuff, um, um, to think about. And I think sadly people aren't thinking about it enough, especially men aren't thinking about it enough. And when you think about the deplorable rates of like violence against women and children in our communities. So first of all, it's understanding like more about that violence um, and what place or what role Indigenous men play um, in that process as well. We don't know enough about that. Um and, um, yeah, but like in particular, um, indigenous men, um, yeah, like a, indigenous men and land management in particular around cultural burning and stuff is really, I think, I think is a really important part of it and is going to be a really big part of it as well. So yeah, I'm, I've got more questions than answers at the moment. So in your panel discussion, um, you were discussing agencies trying to fit the cultural burning into fire management, right? We discussed a little bit of that, you know, taking the knowledge and that thing. Um, then they're not discussing how to decolonize the system and, and, and how, and how to do it differently. So what is that? What does decolonization do you, what does that look like? And, and cause I think for someone like myself, who's not in that world, it's, um, it's not clear what that what that word means. So if you can describe your idea of it and, and how we can accomplish it, because it sounds like up until this point you've had you could really describe it these types of concepts in very clear, obvious ways that almost make people shake their head and go like, well, yeah, if it's that simple, why aren't we doing it? <laughs> so yeah, yeah and, I just wanted to know your thoughts on it. And Matt was saying too, like, you know, oh, I would, I've, at first when you heard it, Matt, hey, you were saying that you got kind of scared. Like, oh, what does decolonization mean? Like, we all have to leave? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get back on your boat and back to England, you yeah. schmuck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, like, what is that concept? Because I don't think it's something that's talked about widely in the non-Indigenous community. It's just not a word that you hear, right? So, yeah. So, decolonization in the context of this kind of work, um, you know, the first the first step that should be taken is um, employ Indigenous people, like get them into the organ. Word, yeah. <laughs> like bring you know. It's just ridiculous for people to talk about decolonization without actually providing opportunities for Indigenous peoples where there weren't opportunities before. And we're not just talking about providing opportunities for Indigenous people as like trainees and as park rangers and that kind of thing, but as, you know, senior managers, as, um, you know, as, as, as department heads, you know, you need Indigenous peoples in the organisation and a part of the structures of the organisation from the top down Um you know, to really embed those voices and perspectives and experiences throughout every level of the organisation. Um, so, you know, that's like that's you can call that decolonisation. I just call that common sense. Um, <laughs> it should just be empowering Indigenous peoples and, and employing them and, 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 and especially anything to do with the land. Um, you know, so what you have is a structural and sustainable voice then in the organisation. Um, 
and like you know it's it's great it's fantastic you know indigenous peoples have a lot to offer um and will offer a lot and enrich the business of an organization so you know get on it get them in and support them and create spaces for them but conversely as well and this is where the other part of it is is that what work needs to be done within an organization and organizational culture to make safe the environment to bring up indigenous peoples in you can't just bring the indigenous peoples into a white institution and say you know here you are we've given you a job our job you know what we're done and just go back to doing things the way that you did them before because mm-hmm. one that's not safe and two you're just perpetuating a problem and cre- and creating a new problem as well um and so you know like it's bring Indigenous peoples in, but then make safe the environment for Indigenous peoples to thrive, to prosper, and to bring their voices in and bring their experiences in and value add to the business of the organisation. I think that's where the larger lesson on decolonisation is how are non-Indigenous people being transformed by working with Indigenous peoples, by learning from Indigenous peoples and fundamentally looking at the land and their place in the land differently. That looks very different for individuals um, and it will be, be very different according to where you are and what organisation you're in and what, what time and year and political environment you find yourself in. It looks very different. But I think the personal journey on that is um, the journey is common, the outcome is different. So, you know, just like we were saying before, you just need to kind of get around it, be be willing to have, you know, things that you um, know questioned. Um, <clears throat> you will be required to question things that you previously didn't question. Rather than reacting badly to that, you should welcome those as really transformative and learning opportunities. I love that concept. I've talked about that lots in my in my other show about just, yeah, questioning your assumptions and your preconceived notions and asking those fundamental questions of like, why do we do this this way? Why have we not discussed it more? Why? Have, yeah, that's, I love that. That's great. Yeah. And I think what the bush, like your bushfire season, ours in Canada here in California, what it's really showing is that, you know, we're, we're not managing things properly, right? When you're having these mass devastation events. And I think that's where the interest in indigenous people and cultural burning comes from is that people are getting, <laughs> you know, worried when you see these things happening. So what's a, you know, we're not doing it right. What's another solution that that we can go with? And it needs to not be, and people need to not feel like it's an attack. Like Biami said, it's an opportunity to do things better. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think climate change is um, both a threat to Indigenous peoples, but a a gift to Indigenous communities for re-empowerment. Like it's, it's just such a strategic opportunity because people are really, asking questions that they never asked before. They want to do things differently. People want to be led down that track. And, you know, like we don't have all of the answers, but we've got some, you know, some pretty useful suggestions. Um, and it starts with empowering Indigenous peoples, giving them agency, giving them a voice in places where they've been historically been marginalised for. And, yes, giving as much of the land back as possible to mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples. Like, it's... Yeah, how can we burn if we don't have any land? Right. <laughs> like, what the heck? Right, and and it's yeah. like, so if, if you're, 
the talk about decolonisation in this space, if you're not willing to talk about how to get the land back to Indigenous peoples, well, then we're not going to get anywhere um, and we're just going to be tinkering at the edges. There is a fundamental component of land and land um, repossession for, of Indigenous peoples that is just so, it is just such a core part of it. And um, rather than that being seen as like, you know, oh, they're coming for my property and all this kind of thing, um, you know, the fact is there's, oh, there's so much land in these places and, you know, um, Indigenous peoples um, were dispossessed of so much of it. So, yeah, let's have a healthy conversation around what land repossession looks like and land justice looks like. In Canada too. What's I don't know what the situation is by me in Australia, but in Canada, I think it's like eighty percent of our land is crown land, so owned by the government, where it's actually not even in private hands. So my first thing whenever I say land back is like, let's start with that land first. We can get to the private owned land later. Yeah, there's parts of the land that even non-indigenous people, you know, like just don't want apparently. So like, give that land back. We'll take anything back. You know, yeah. just give, give us as much of it back as possible um, and then we'll start to talk about, um, you know, how what, what kind of resources we need we need to manage that land effectively to mitigate the risks, um, which everyone will share. Everyone is, is, will, will share that risk. So, yeah, let's um, – yeah, there, there's a lot of really healthy, fertile stuff to talk about um, and we just need to – yeah, be brave enough to have it in a lot of different ways. So um, there's both practical steps, short-term steps that people can take in this space um, that, that shouldn't be offensive to anyone. So that's kind of like let's get the low-hanging fruit and then let's have a conversation around how we can ripen the fruit right up further up the tree so that we can, we can pick that when, it's, when the time's right. Yeah, I find that with cultural burning, it's a rant I've been going on lately is about the romanticism side. So the agencies and other folks, they like the nice ideas around cultural burning. But when it comes to the things that actually require organizational change or to address systemic racism, you know, that's immediately when support weans a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, and it's um, um, like the like here in Australia, people like to talk about cultural burning, but what they don't like to talk about is their how their own land management regimes and fire management regimes that prescribe burning stuff actually contribute to the problem rather than mitigate it. And when Indigenous mm-hmm. people come into a room and tell them that, they really don't like it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are um, warm and fuzzy things around cultural burning that we can get and we should have that and we should feel warm and fuzzy about that, but there are also really, you know, conversations with jagged edges that we need to be happy to dive into and um, we shouldn't be taking those as attacks but you know learning from that and having conversations around that stuff as well awesome by me you're the best it's been a long conversation so yeah we'll let you I mean we'll wrap up there Matt and I were just saying we could ask you a million questions to discuss these things Absolutely. No, that was incredible by me. That was very powerful. And I definitely learned a whole bunch. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to go through your thoughts and, and, and speak your story. Cause I think, I, I think we'll see where we go with this season, um, what we end up doing, but I, I think it would be, a, might be a real possibility that we can, we should maybe try and do this again for a second episode in this season, because I just think you're, you've broken everything down in a way that it's so digestible 
and so understandable to someone like myself who's not in that world. And I, it's, I think it's a difficult thing to do. So uh, I think it'd be good to maybe try and get you on again sometime here. Cool. Sure, absolutely. Sign me up anytime, guys. I'll uh, yeah. Yeah, support it. And we'll be thinking, yeah, we'll be thinking of you too through the COVID-19 situation. I know in your community, you've been doing amazing work. Everyone should follow by me on Twitter. Yeah. Definitely, definitely yeah, do that. Yeah, no, it is a scary time. But yeah, no, really would um yeah, would welcome the opportunity to come back on and have another have another yarn with you with you both. So yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. That was uh I don't know about you, but I definitely Got the chills listening to Buy Me. Um, I've listened to it a few times because I have to edit this stuff. So uh, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's he, he's he's quite the guy. Yeah, well, his testimony, I think, at the Royal Commission and other things that he's been working on, yeah, have just been fantastic. And if any of you are interested, I think, you know, we talked about it in the episode, but Buy Me's written some great pieces in the conversation. Um, so you can Google his name um, and the conversation or anything and, and read some of his writing. Um, it's just, yes, such a privilege uh, to work with him. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So uh, who are we talking to next time? Yeah, I think next time we're actually going to California to talk to Ron W. Good, who is um, another amazing um, cultural fire practitioner. He is actually our most requested podcast guest. <laughs> I had multiple emails um, and requests on Twitter um, to feature Ron. And I mean, he's an amazing storyteller. Um, so yeah, it, another great episode coming your way. Yep. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. The most important thing, if you guys want to support this podcast in some way or another, the most important thing you can do is to share it on social media and tell tell people about it. That's that's the best thing you can do for us. Um, after all, it's free information, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> True, yeah. I mean, more people listen to this than any of my publications that I've ever written. So. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if you if you want to do something good for us, if you if you like this, um, you can rate and review, share it on social media, tag uh, take Amy in it, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, she's, she's the voice, she's the powerhouse behind this show. And, uh, yeah, that'll help get spread the word. And, uh, yeah, just keep in mind that if you don't do that, you're basically just a freeloader. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was also going to make a bad joke about cutting checks, but probably not a good joke to make in my role as a federal public servant. <laughs> oh, maybe not. Yeah. Maybe we'll yeah, steer yeah. clear of that one. Okay. Well, I guess that ends it. We'll, uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see you guys. We'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. A huge thank you to Canada Wildfire for their support of this podcast. As well, we would like to thank the fighting Gunda Jamara for allowing us to share their fire song, Ween, as the official song of Good Fire Podcast.